Welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, James Starkey. And me, Jonathan Gullis. So our guest today, I think, needs no introduction at all. She has been involved in the Conservative Party since the 90s. She was first elected, I think, as an A-lister in 2010. She's held many positions in government, including under the Coalition as Exchequer to the Treasury, Minister of State for Employment, more recently Secretary of State for International Development, and then Home Secretary for more than three years. She is, of course, the Right Honourable... Priti Patel, welcome Priti. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. I thought, um, well, how we might start is we, today we want to have a look at how legislation is made. You know, we're kind of people sure. are familiar with, well, they'll maybe see stuff uh, in the press about various stages in Parliament. We're kind of trying to want to get a bit behind that. But you're, you know, quite a well-known figure. People might think they know about your background, think they know about you. But, you know, how, why did you get involved in politics and wh- where did that come from? So... Everyone thinks they know everything about lots of politicians. And of course, they know snapshots and they pick up bits and pieces from the media. Um, My background as to why I got involved in the party and in politics was pretty clear, actually, very straightforward. I was obviously politically motivated. I joined the Conservative Party at the time when Cecil Parkinson was my member of parliament. I had zero inclination to become an MP. I was not interested in becoming a member of parliament. I'm an activist first and foremost. I like the grassroots. I campaign a lot. I enjoy all of that kind of stuff. I'm quite an organiser as well. But it was through that, and I've had a professional career prior to becoming a member of parliament, um, it was really through my grassroots activism. Um, It came together really in terms of, you know, trying to stand to become a member of parliament because we were in opposition for a long, long time. And one of our party leaders at the time, and that was Ian Duncan Smith, basically said to me, you should really try to be the change that you want to see in our party, but also nationally. He felt that I had a lot to offer. So I then totted back to my office, back to work that afternoon. And before I knew it, I then got a call saying, you know, would you like to try to apply for a seat, go on the candidates list? And I'm really inquisitive at that stage. What do I need to do? Lots of selection processes, you know, all the types of things that you hear a lot about. And before I knew it, I passed the tests to go through. And I had the opportunity to apply for constituencies, which was really hard, (laughs) really, really hard, not straightforward. Going about the country, you know, week in, weekend, every weekend, basically, Mm. um, with my dear husband driving me to absolutely every single selection meeting. But it was an eye-opener. It was an absolute eye-opener. And every knockback that I received, it actually made me more determined to defy everybody and effectively say, no, I can do this and I will do this. Despite at the time I was holding down a professional career, I was traveling quite extensively internationally. Um, And my husband was hugely supportive. So, you know, that's really how it came about. Mm. Um, I stood in the the 2005 general election in Nottingham North. Um, Michael Howard was our party leader then. And then obviously when things changed, David Cameron became leader. I had the chance in 2006 to reapply for constituencies or apply for seats. And I did. Whittam, ironically, was the last seat that I applied for. Really? Primarily because I was working for a big international company and they were looking to relocate me. And in fact, I was selected for Whittam, I think on a Monday night, on a rainy Monday night in November 2006. And that was the week where I think my contract had come together for me to relocate internationally. Um, And at that stage, my my husband had effectively said to me, you can't keep on applying for seats, you have Mm. to have a cutoff period. And that is the story as to, you know, how Whittam was the last seat that 
that I applied for. Well, how many seats did you have to go for? Um, in the run-up to getting selected for Whitton, Whitton was my 21st constituency. Wow. So resilience, commitment, determination, those are, you know, natural, I think, natural qualities and attributes you need to really keep going and put yourself forward. And I'd say the same for public life as well. Because we did with Jonathan his kind of background, and it is... It's not easy to become an MP. I think you have to really want to do it, right? You have to be really motivated. But the motivation isn't just about becoming an MP. Mm. For me, it was very much about, you know, why do I want to become an MP? Exactly. What do I think I could do? For me, it was very much about representation. I'm pretty traditional and quite old-fashioned, actually. I believe in the concept of public service, something we simply do not hear much about at all, you know, in politics, in Westminster. When do you hear people speak about public service? I think, quite frankly, you know, politicians have a bad reputation for a number of reasons. You know, they're too preoccupied with second jobs, for example. That's a topical subject, you know, post the weekend. Mm. Um, you know, they're not they're not turning up to, you know, speak on issues that matter to their constituents, or they're not even their constituencies a lot of the time as well. I like to think, um, you know, everyone has a different way of working. I'm pretty much, you know, very basic. I go to my constituency. I love working in the community. I like making a difference to people. And I think also within my wider family, that's something that we've always believed in as well. Um, you know, philanthropy, helping people. Um, my mother's background on her side of the family, in particular historically, they've done a lot of work like that. Not politics, but very much community assistance and helping people. And I'm very much of that vocation. And um, when you come into Parliament, obviously the big way you can change things is the topic of our podcast today, legislation. Because what we want to try and understand is it's a, you know, people will be, it's one of those terms that people are familiar with when you say, well, passing a bill through Parliament, but how does it really get made? And you've been a Secretary of State in two departments, you've worked in many departments, mm. including the Treasury. And so what we wanted to try and understand is kind of how does that process start? So... It's not straightforward. I think we should be very, very clear about that. I think the language of, you know, we're legislating for or introducing this bill, sometimes it's used very casually and quite flippantly in politics and in Westminster. The development stages of a bill takes time. And of course, that's why the scrutiny of a draft bill is so important, because if it's badly drafted and rushed and put together in a lousy way, it's going to have lots of holes, basically, you know, like a sieve. And there'll be lots of legal lacunas and lots of problems. But first and foremost, we have to rewind, I think, you know, in terms of the actual process before a bill is, bill is even drafted. So announcing a bill would be through something such as, as I've experienced, the Queen's Speech. So the humble address when that comes to Parliament. Um, her Majesty, as our late Her Majesty, would clearly recite a list of bills that would come forward in that session of Parliament. More often than not, um, I certainly worked on the premise that we would have the concept of the bill not quite drafted, but definitely the genesis of it ready by the time of the Queen's speech. And certainly when I was Home Secretary, we sought to do that. Um, I've taken through several bills in Parliament, ranging from counterterrorism, national security, clearly on immigration, legal migration. So we created the points based immigration system, police, crime, courts and sentencing. And my last bill was the National anti Borders Act. And I think if I can just use that one piece of legislation just to walk you through the steps. Mm. So it was announced in Parliament 
Um, but at the same time, the actual drafting took place in 2021. That was a physical drafting of the bill, although the concept of what effectively became the Nationality and Borders Bill, stroke Act of Parliament as it is, as it is really started and developed in 2020. So from May 2020 onwards, and it's a deeply complicated bill. Um, there are various parts of that bill because we would we literally mapped out on a whiteboard, which I think is a sensible process, what are we trying to achieve through this legislation? Of course, it was very much around illegal migration. What are the key pull factors around illegal migration? Where can we be much stronger in terms of criminality, prosecution, the legal system, such as the courts, because the courts were constantly thwarting us with appeals and things of that nature. So different parts of the bill and different pillars of the bill were literally looked at. And then that's where the drafting starts. So you look at what you're trying to achieve and then you start drafting the bill. Pretty, if I can come in, sorry, here. Because what I'm fascinated is obviously you've been working as a government minister under from David Cameron all the way through to Boris Johnson. Can I ask how often, or when you were Secretary of State uh, for International Development as well as obviously the Home Office, did you have free reign to bring forward bills in areas that you felt you need to, or is Number Ten in charge of what you do there? Like, is it or is it different depending on who's in charge? So I suspect it is very different depending on who the Prime Minister of the day is. In my time in government, I mean, I have covered a lot of legislation. I actually brought in the Welfare Reform Act in 2012. That was a mega, mega piece of legislation. It effectively took £12 billion out of the welfare budget. And with that, we brought forward universal credit, made some major changes. I was involved in the drafting, the handling, the parliamentary process, the committee stage, all of that. And Jonathan, you're very familiar with those stages. Um, quite frankly, that became quite difficult. That was one bill that, um, you know, we took through Parliament. But it's an interesting bill because a bit like the Home Office bill that I was just describing, both bills are very operational. So you can make it an act of Parliament. And then, of course, in the DWP case, um, it's all about the operations, you know, consolidating um, welfare payments and changing the system. In our case of National Anzian Borders, um, an act of parliament that it was it was given in royal assent last year, hasn't been implemented, by the way, has not been implemented. Everybody just, you know, sort of trying to airbrush the significance of that bill. Unless you start doing the structural implementation, the outcomes will not be achieved. But Jonathan, to your point, I have to say that certainly in my time in government, both when I served in DWP and DFID, and as Home Secretary, it's not so much free reign, it's the case of these are the commitments we've made to the British people, manifesto commitments. So in DFID, we took forward a very, very simple piece of legislation, and DFID doesn't legislate a great deal because it's international aid. We effectively had something called CDC, which was the um, Commonwealth Development Bank. And I was recapitalising that bank up to about £12 billion, actually. So you had to legislate to do that. So, you know, that's a formality but it's still legislation that is required. You still have to go through the committee stages and all of that. So there is good structure and good process. But of course, the key to all of this, and Jonathan will know this, um, in terms of delivering a bill through Parliament, it's about engagement. 
parliamentary engagement, where does that go? Who leads on that? How does that work? And I have to say, um, you know, you just have to read newspapers recently to sort of hear the briefing that takes place around legislation, some of the backbiting and backbriefing as well. That's unnecessary because people should just be very dedicated and diligent in making sure that they can deliver their legislation. And when it comes to, as you said there, the engagement, you've obviously been the top of one of the biggest, the great offices of state. When you're looking at legislation, would you normally bring in your entire junior ministerial team or just the minister who may have relevance in that area? Or actually, is, are you, were you someone who liked to drive it yourself first to do the stress testing and then bring in the junior ministers? No, so I've, I've always worked and operated um, with a team. I believe in that. I think that's absolutely imperative. And I've been really blessed and very fortunate, Jonathan. I mean, I've had excellent ministers, um, certainly in the Home Office, and we supported each other. You cannot work in isolation of your ministerial team, primarily because in my case as Home Secretary, you can't do committee stage of a bill and be on top of everything else that goes on in your day-to-day life. It's simply impossible. So when it came to, for example, second reading, I would always try and do the second reading myself and my team would come and support me on the front bench because one of the ministers would end up closing a second reading debate. And of course, that minister, more often than not, would also be the key minister that will take the bill through the committee. Um, National in borders though, Jonathan, and you, you will remember this, um, I had every minister involved. And that was a complete joy. I worked on their speeches for their component parts of the bill. We knew exactly who was speaking to who as backbenchers. We're a proper team. Literally, I mean, you could you could literally see, um, you know, who'd sort of pick up the ball one day or on a particular part of the bill, who was dealing with certain amendments that had been tabled or backbench queries that were coming up. And we all knew exactly what we'd say because, Jonathan, you'll appreciate this, our colleagues are very persistent. So let's say, you know, there's one particular colleague who's got a particular issue. He might think, well, I've spoken to Pretty and um, that's fine. What she said is okay, but I'm going to try and speak to Minister Perslove now or Minister McLean or Minister Foster. And believe you me, good persistent colleagues do that. But that backbench MP would get the same answer from all of us. And being consistent really, really matters. So there's no room for someone to stand up at the dispatch box and mislead or misrepresent. And I think that's really quite important, particularly on home affairs, because it's so emotive, it's very sensitive. Um, You have to be mindful of the language that you use. Um, I don't, I really don't think it's right to just stand up at the dispatch box and give assurances. So to give another example of legislation that I was recently involved in, um, the online safety bill, where there is now a criminal liability basically for technology companies, um, you know, should they fail in safeguarding young people. So I was heavily involved in all of that. And there's a whole group of backbenchers that we worked with on that. But I made it abundantly clear, I'm not going to um, just take warm words and assurances at the dispatch box. I want to see, you know, exactly what we've asked for in writing. Therefore, the minister can come or the secretary of state can come to the dispatch box and give a written ministerial statement on the same day, spelling out precisely what we have asked for will be on the face of the bill. So there are ways in which you know you can achieve outcomes um, and drive change. You know, I believe in driving change, but it's all about ways of working and your personal, I think, work ethic and commitment Delivering legislation is so important for the government of the day. And quite frankly, 
I've always felt for my own personal reputation and integrity, um, and I do believe in quite high standards, um, that, you know, you have to work across the board with all your colleagues. You bring your ministers with you um, and they are part of a team. They feel part of a team, but that is the best way that you can deliver results and outcomes and make your make sure that your parliamentary party are also on your side as well. And you, you, so you mentioned bringing people with you. Obviously, as you said, this is this delivers change and they're operational. They affect people's lives, uh, the way businesses run it, and so on. How do you ensure before you settle the bill, or even during, when people are coming forward and saying, "Well, that that thing there might have unintended consequences"? Have you thought about that? And for whatever reason, you need to. How do you engage with people externally on that? To either whether it's bringing amendments or the government accepting them themselves? So I think there are two things, actually, because drafting is crucial to this. Do not forget we're always lawyered up to the eyeballs on, you know, any legislation. And to be fair, on my last piece of legislation, we had a lot of external counsel brought in um, because I think we needed to sort of put the mirror up to ourselves, challenge the law in the right way, test whether or not there'd be new loopholes, unintended consequences created, etc. So that, I think I've always been very diligent on that side of things. So I know from the legals, the legalities, though that was all in good place. But rightly, our colleagues who bring a world of wealth of experience as well, many of them have served in government, they've done lots of things externally, um, worked for organisations where they might have campaigned or been advocates for particular causes. Modern day slavery is a good example, actually. There are a lot of our colleagues that have done some good work in this area. So I was quite rightly tested and challenged on national anti borders around unintended consequences around modern-day slavery. So you've asked about the engagement. What do we do? You spend time with those individuals, backbench colleagues. In my case, again and again and again, several times, as a particular colleague I'm not going to name. Um, or go on. <laughs> who, who was – no – he um, was very diligent, very persistent, but the good thing is we bring insights, insights in terms of the type of cases around modern-day slavery and trafficking, horrible, all horrible cases, and how we could sharpen the law, but actually do better with law enforcement so that law enforcement would actually pick up those cases rather than leading to unintended consequences of criminalising the victim. So, you know, you work through all those types of cases, examples and scenarios to make sure that your legislation does not have that unintended consequence. But that's just one example that I'm giving. And there were a few others, but nowhere near, you know, some of the, I, I, was, I looked at, and Jonathan will know this, Jonathan was involved in the legislation on small bows. There were 84 pages of amendments to that piece of legislation, which is How many of them were Jonathan, was, was Jonathan responsible Jonathan, for? <laughs> Jonathan had a good handful, but 84 pages of amendments. Hmm. That tells you something about the drafting of the bill, um, the unintended consequences. As for the number of clauses, I mean, Jonathan, you might know better than me, but 84 pages, number of clauses, changes, amendments, easily in their hundreds, um, which, you know, trying to marshal all of that, you know, never mind being a minister and marshalling it, but also for officials and civil servants that do all the background work for ministers is really, really very difficult. I thought what was interesting, James, was because I oh, the, the legislation pretty refers to the National Anti Borders Act. I I was put onto the um, public bill committee, which you go to a committee room every Tuesday and Thursday. There's a certain amount of Conservative colleagues, Labour, SNP, and uh, and others in there, 
And we're in a committee room, you take evidence from outside stakeholders, and then you go line by line, as we did with that legislation, and look at every single amendment and vote repeatedly. And there's a time deadline, as you'll know pretty as well, which is what interesting because the challenge of getting legislation through within a certain time mm, right. frame is also important. So how do you deal with getting the right engagement, allowing you know amendments to be looked at, but also keeping to a time frame that means that legislation doesn't ultimately fail in being delivered? No, well, I think it's quite straightforward. I mean, you know, that's that's your responsibility as a Secretary of State or as a Minister. Um, you're given your parameters very clearly, your time frame. You know what it is. You just know what it is. There's a whole process. Second reading, after second reading, you move on to the next stage. Once it goes to committee stage, and Jonathan, you'll know this, committee can last a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks and you have your two sessions every week um that could be four sessions are you keeping an eye when it's going through committee it, how much is the secretary of state following what are you uh, leaving the whole that thing to your whole no way i mean in my case the whole thing so i'd get the daily updates on that i mean i would uh, <laughs> i'd read everything pretty pretty literally read the minutes because she quoted about what i said once in the tea room the day before and i was quite amazed uh, that is quite that correct she knew what i said in the exactly so i would read um the hansard report and not only that i mean it's really important to do that because quite frankly this is where you pick up some of the challenges that you might get you know when it comes back for report stage for example um and you know where you might pick up points of contention it's important to do this because quite frankly that's where you can also zap the opposition you can see where they're sort of like flying kites and you know asking probing questions all really important but at least you get to know where the land lies around a piece of legislation through every single every single stage so it's absolutely vital and to be honest i mean as home secretary i've had times as home secretary well i've got a feeling we might have even had two to three bills on the go at the same time so you can imagine the stretch that and the demands that puts on ministers and there was one moment where we had nationalizing borders and the police crime courts and sentencing literally going through ping pong in the house of lords and house of commons at the same time um so that was i, I think that might have been last spring or something like that but anyway that's very demanding so you have to very much concentrate and focus not just on the delivery of the bill but the nuances and I've also, as part of engagement, we've only spoken about backbench MPs, but of course, you know, um, noble peers, their peers, mm. their lordships as well. We have to engage them too. I was going to say, do you leave that to your, because every department will have a lords minister. So would you leave by and large that engagement in the House of Lords to them or? No, I would also do that. I would do do that alongside the Lord's Minister because obviously the Lord Lord's Minister, in my case it was Susan Williams, who is very, very well known, incredibly well respected. She's been in the department for many, many years. Um, so I would support Susan um, on any engagement that she was undertaking. And there'd be moments where I'd also go and speak to, you know, our peers in the House of Lords as well. So all of that is, as I said, it's teamwork. That's how you work together. There should never be a time, in my view, um, as a secretary of state or as a minister, where you feel that you know you're just leaving it to somebody else. Um, I have seen that actually, um, you know, as a backbencher observing government and in government as well. 
that's just not right. It really isn't. You know, there's a point about accountability. Um, accountability, yes, integrity and delivery. Um, I've seen people in the past, you know, try and claim credit for stuff that they haven't done, which is just pathetic. But at the end of the day, it is absolutely vital that you work as a team and you support each other because you never know if something's going to go wrong. And secondly, you know, you are spinning lots of plates. I always felt in the Home Office we're spinning too many plates. Um, if one of those plates comes crashing down, it could end up very badly. Um, and you can't just sort of say to, you know, a, a member of your team, a junior minister, that's, you know, your fault or you need to pick it up. You have to take responsibility for that. It's interesting what you say, Pretty, about the Lords Minister and James made the point because I think they're often easily forgotten that there is a Lords Minister in department. I remember in my, albeit very brief time with in the Department for Education, Diana Barron, I think, is now on her third or fourth Secretary of State for Education. And actually, she'd actually ended up introducing legislation in the Lords, which is quite unusual, which would then come to the Commons. Yes. But my observation was that she was just solely engaging and doing all the engagement with Lords, uh, with peers. And the idea was that they would just pick it up and then start the engagement with the Commons. And I thought that was quite odd as well, because like you say, surely you'd want to know what was going up that end of the house in terms of who was saying what, who was being supportive, who was being difficult. So you could try to figure out, like you've said, how to avoid ping pong when, uh, when necessary, but also how to find landing spots that will make it easy in the Commons and the Lords. And I suppose another thing I'd be intrigued by as well is how often you would engage with the opposition. Do you regularly meet with you know the opposition whips, opposition ministers, in order to try and find a middle ground on certain things or to try and, you know, yes, you can have votes on X, Y, and Z, but reality is we'll be here till for three days. We vote on every amendment you've put down. So like, how do you negotiate with the opposition? Yeah, so they're very, very good questions, Jonathan. I think, first of all, the point about the Lords is really important. Um, you know, Lords engagements. I was I was blessed. I worked with Susan Williams, who was very well established in the Home Office. Um, so not only did she know her brief very well, she was respected amongst colleagues. So with that, and, you know, there have been moments where, Home Office legislation has started in the House of Lords, progresses and then comes back um, to the Commons. But you do, it's inevitable and it's the right thing to do. You work alongside your Lords Ministers for the very reasons we've been discussing. Um, you need to know, you need to learn. Um, and also you need to hear different points of view, which is incredibly important. Um, but Jonathan, you've also asked about opposition engagement. And of course, this is where the wider team comes in. We've only focused on the ministerial team, but of course, we have a departmental whip who would work alongside me. They were always part of our team. So they would join us for meetings on legislation, um, right down to being in the meetings where we're doing rehearsals and running through um, committee stage clause by clause, which I think is important. I'm not sure how many secretaries of state and ministers do that together. But that's vital because the whips can then find points of accommodation with the opposition with the Labour Party, for example, ditto on the Lord's sides. There'd be many opportunities or many moments, I should say, where my Lord's minister has found a point of accommodation um, with her opposite number in the House of Lords. And of course, we're brought into that. Um, she would lead on those discussions and obviously sense check with me and we'd work through what that accommodation would look like. So, you know, it's not necessarily direct, direct, but I have had instances where actually mainly on security issues where I would speak directly to my um, counterpart, opposite counterpart, and even um, to the leader of the opposition as well, um, because obviously it's very wide ranging, my brief in the Home Office. And, and 
I, what I was curious about, because I don't know the answer to this, why do you start it in a particular house? Why would you start a piece of legislation in the Lords rather than the Commons? So sometimes it is because of the parliamentary timetable. The parliamentary timetable can be so gridlocked and chock-a-block. I mean, to be fair, this session of Parliament is still pushing through le well, new legislation, such as the bill Jonathan's been heavily amending. Um, but, but <laughs> Old habits die hard. Uh, but also <laughs> alongside bills that were still part of the late Her Majesty's Queen's speech. So, you know, that those bills are still going through Parliament. And, you know, so... The so it's time a way table. of just keeping things moving. It's the way in which things can keep on moving and then you split the workload. It is effectively process and splitting the workload between the two houses. And you've, you've worked when you, your first department was the Treasury. That's right. So you've worked with George Osborne. You worked with Indock and Smith, uh, working pensions. How, how much did you take when you became Secretary of State at Diffid in the Home Office from people you'd, you know, they're two pretty prominent politicians, yes. very well respected what are the bits that you learned from them, and, and whether other is there other cabinet colleagues that you've seen in the in the past decade that you think are particularly good, and you've kind of stolen techniques so, from? So, so I actually think I've been very, very blessed. I mean, you know, the greatest privilege was working my first job, being in the Treasury. That is quite amazing, absolutely amazing, and you know, it, it was incredible because also I entered the Treasury in the run-up to a general election. So fascinating time to learn. We had an economic crisis, the banking crisis. So it was 2010. So I entered the Treasury, I became a minister in 2014. Okay, so you know, the banking crisis has changed everything in our country, the fiscal basis of our country as well. You know, famously, we inherited the note from Liam Byrne. There is no money, so we were still being used. We were, we well, quite. We were going through so much change, and you know that the period of very difficult consolidation that took place as well. Um, so to come in in 2014, looking ahead to a general election, I came in at the time. You know, the dip had gone, and we were starting to move upwards because the economy was rebounding, employment was going up, job creation was in a better place after what had been a pretty miserable time. Um, and I learned a lot from George Osborne, actually. I mean, I personally think he was a very, very good chancellor, a very strong politician as well, and political. You know, everyone could say you can be a sort of technocrat and all of that kind of stuff, but you've got to be political. You have to have a political nousness antennae. And George Osborne had that in spades. He really did. And I was able to observe and learn from that. Um, and that was something that I think has stuck with me ever since. The same actually in um, DWP. I worked alongside Ian Duncan Smith, who I have to say was one of the best secretaries of state. Um, you know, I had the privilege of working with him. I learned so much from him. He effectively treated me like his number two. Um, and he effectively said, if anything happens, you know, you you join me in all the meetings, etc. Because it's a very technical department, very operational. He would have me alongside him. I learned so much. I learned a lot about operational delivery, um, accountability as well, the legals, because we were in court every day, literally lots of legal cases around welfare benefits. Um, and then you also learn one thing we haven't really touched on is sometimes government communications. Mm. And, you know, when you switch on the news, mainstream news, if you want for a better word, you just sort of hear the sort of regressive dirge, government doing X or, you know, protests against whatever. Understanding how to communicate 
the work of the governments. And I don't think governments do very well at this at all. I'd say that even from my time in, as Home Secretary. I remember you always used to say to me, you would take out, because the I think the government press offices are quite obsessed with big numbers. That's right. And you would always say, no, what, what's the outcomes? It's, so, exactly is that. Is that where you think the heart of the communications is when you're so, doing something? I've always believed in outcomes for people. I'm not interested in, you know, today the government has announced £180 million, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that is not how we should be communicating with the country. We simply should not be communicating that way. And too much of government communications is. It's all the press releases are full of headline figures. And I just think, and I say this as a backbench MP, a constituency MP, the public are tired of that. It means nothing to them. I think the NHS is a very good example of this. Um, Mid-Essex, I represent a constituency in Mid-Essex. We have one of the highest NHS deficits in the country. But the public are only interested in access to services. Why don't we have enough GPs? And so for me, it's literally following the money, people and outcomes. So I want to know what that £180 million announcement means for the Whitam constituency and the delivery of service. And I think we have to really make this much more human and focused on outcomes and delivery. Jonathan, on just on that brief point on the comms, I know if you look at the Red Wall, a lot of that is about actually, well, we've spent this much money on the Red Wall. Do, do you think there's too much focus on the money and not enough on the outcomes? I think I think Pretty's very right in this. I mean, if you look at the National Acting Borders Act and the current illegal migration bill, as it's called, as we stand, we can legislate for everything, but actually this is an operational matter, how to process things quicker, how to deliver the policy objectives, etc. And I think it's very easy to get caught up in talking about, for example, with this legislation around crime, oh, we're going to put people in prison for longer, but actually what does that mean? Do we have prison spaces available? How do we release people back into the community, make sure they're rehabilitated? I think that's always been a challenge and something that maybe as backbench colleagues we can overlook quite easily because it's maybe just you know saying someone's going to prison for 10 years is very easy to put on a leaflet to explain on a doorstep to talk about in the chamber the operational side is much more technical and maybe as backbench mps we overestimate we underestimate sorry the british public and actually being able to understand that and we think we can get away with the headline actually it's mm. much more about operation i think a lot of legislation is done at times when actually we could be talking about delivery on the operational side of things. And that does come sometimes with money. And I know that's why as a chancellor, you, you worry about that side of things probably being focused on more. But ultimately, you can legislate all you want. If things aren't actually being delivered or working, then ultimately the policy is meaningless. So I think just on this point, a classic example, in 2021, we asked the Treasury from the Home Office for money to reform the asylum processing system. It was completely rejected, by the way. And we said, if you don't do this, you're going to end up spending more money, basically, because it'll take time, longer time to process the cases, et cetera, et cetera. You end up in a complete... Where, where would that cash have got? What was the money for? So... Um, Digitalization, digitalization, right? So the whole system is still very paper-based. And it was a labor of love, basically, to try and persuade the Treasury to give that money. But this is the, an operational point. Unless you digitalize and get rid of paper bases, and don't forget, of course, we had COVID, so people were not working, they're working from home, all this kind of stuff. You've got all the sluggishness that then creeps into the system. And, and now people are saying, we got backlogs, et cetera, et cetera. So what do they do? They then announce resources and it's a sticking plaster too late when actually we could have done the investment much earlier on um, to really move things on. 
And my sense is, and I think this is quite important, because if you look at the stage that we're at in this parliament, this is the delivery phase of this parliament. It's not the phase to make new announcements, um, talk about more money, or introduce new legislation. So if we think back to the last 12 months, apart from the fact that we've had, you know, too many prime ministers and, you know, the whole British system has been upended, National Anti-Borders, if we just use that one example, that became an act of parliament. This time, this entire period should have all been about the operational implementation and delivery so that by the time we get to the general election, even before the general election, we could see faster case processing, um, you know, streamlining off the immigration courts and tribunals, more criminal prosecutions, a small boat pilots, for example, actually going through the courts as well, um, you know, everything to do with the overall delivery. But instead, all we're getting now, I think, is yes, we're probably 18 months max a year, you know, before a general election. And it just feels like it's, you know, initiative after initiative after initiative. And that's where I think the public will tune out. What should the, so on that point then, what should be happening now? Because you met, you mentioned earlier that it's not, not all been operationalized. The board, the bill that you brought through, what are the things that are not being done? So one-stop shop on courts. So this is where individuals go back and appeal and appeal and appeal. We brought in legislation to streamline that. Um, but the reason why it's not being operationalised is because Jonathan's favourite bill right now in Parliament, you know, they are arguing and claiming that that would supersede this bill. Although there were some colleagues yesterday I saw making rather disparaging remarks about the National Anti-Borders Act, um, claiming that I said that it stopped the boats. I've never said that. It was about reforming the asylum system and the illegal migration system. So, you know, this, this jars, it does jar somewhat because actually you can introduce your legislation now, but you still have to do the operational pieces of existing legislation. I think some of my colleagues, I, I think even Theresa May might, may have made that point in Parliament recently too. I think that's, I think pretty hits the nail on the head. I think at the end of the day, the public is so used to us talking about changing the law, but actually, and you know this, James, from stuff you've done professionally, focus groups, etc. People just want to see a difference, and people don't really now, I think, believe in politicians talking in the chamber. They're like, I'll believe it when I see it. When you say, so when someone goes to prison for ten years for X crime. I believe that that's now going to happen. When we see in the case of the bill we're talking about, when we see processing sped up, when they haven't got a backlog as we do now, when that backlog reduces, I believe that we've sped up the processing system. I think when it look at online safety, stuff that Pretty's done, again, we'll believe when the first company that oversteps the mark is actually held to account, we'll believe that's going to happen. I think that's where to rebuild trust in politics, we need to move away from just passing legislation. We actually need to start delivering on legislation and pretty one thing I was really intrigued in as well because you've done an awful there's awful lot obviously as you say engagement there's one thing I didn't know about until I uh, was a PPS parliamentary private secretary to Brandon Lewis and he was doing legislation with Northern Ireland and looking at uh, renegotiating the protocol this term right around you have to get oh, yes. cabinet right around I, it seems you know it seems odd but can you just explain what that is and what, what how easy that process well is? that's all part of the function of government and it's basically keeping you pure in the sense that you are this is the whole point about collective responsibility in government so if you're drafting legislation you know you have to write around to your cabinet colleagues basically um, and it gives them the opportunity rightly so in my view to scrutinize 
scrutinize your work, what you're doing, look out for any consequentials for their own department as well. So, for example, the Ministry of Justice would have a huge say and significance um, in home office business, for example, and rightly so. Um, ditto Northern Ireland office on things like terror, terror and security and, you know, Brexit matters as well. So, the right around is a process, um, but it's an important process. It's not just a tick box with every government department sort of saying, yes, I've seen it. You know, it's part of your day to day, you know, when as a minister, you're doing your ministerial box, it'll be full of government write arounds, um, consultations between departments and things of that nature. So it takes time. And this is why, you know, I come back to, you know, the example of a bill that's got, you know, 84 pages of amendments. You can stop some of that by having good work-ins um, across government and proper dialogue at the outset. Is, is it a kind of theory of right arounds of mine? Would be pretty much every, so right arounds will only go to departments who, where they're relevant. So it's, it's, tell me if I'm wrong. So number 10 will see everything. Yes. Cabinet office will see everything. Yes. But one of the reasons the Treasury is so important is almost everything in government involves it. money. Yes. So everything goes to the Treasury. So those three departments, one of the reasons they're so key, obviously they've got important people in them, is that every bit of government legislation that needs agreement, they essentially need to agree to. Is that correct? So there's a massive irony to all of this, which is, James, the answer to your question is definitely yes. And therefore, you would think that government was integrated, you know, much more joined up. But as we know, operationally, it is not joined up at all in terms of delivery, departments working in isolation. Look at the NHS, for example. You know, everyone thinks the government, government runs the NHS. It does not. It's NHS England. We just fund it and we have no say with the operationalization. Um, but these right rounds, absolutely to the big departments, to effectively the Treasury, as we know from the infamous Red Book, you know, they have to score everything, they have to, you know, work with the OBR, they need to make sure that everything is fiscally, financially sound and deliverable. Um, they'll clock it up against your budget for the next spend and review. All those types of very, very important considerations are then factored in. Um, and if you're somewhat overzealous on spending, then the Treasury are going to come up, come after you at some stage anyway and claw it all back. So, you know, this is why you have to have the right round process and you have to have the proper engagement that's required across government departments. And so the one question I wanted to ask you is, uh, when you go up and I, you, know, you watch the Secretary of State of the Dispatch Box, you, how many hours are you there for? Could be an hour, could be three or four hours. So it just to, depends. It really depends. And you've got questions. I was saying to Jonathan earlier, you know, the, the backbench MP or the, your opposite number, the shadow, will kind of prepare their brief. You have to be ready for every single question. That's you have to correct, be ready yeah. for the questions on your side, the kind of formal opposition, but their backbenchers, the other opposition parties. How much time do you spend preparing for that? Oh, I've, you know, what's in that big book that uh, we see the ministers in front of them? Is how how do you who prepares so those books? Everyone everyone has a different way of working and a different style. Um, you've asked what's in the folders. I mean, it's an extensive Q&A that, you know, is bigger than a doorstep You don't sometimes. give a copy of The Spectator in there. <laughs> no, there's, 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 <laughs> there's nothing like that, James. Nothing at all. No, because you've got to be focused, absolutely focused. And I think actually it's not just about sort of looking up answers and things of that nature, just reading from a script. It's effectively showing um, and giving, articulating your response to questions and engaging. Parliament is all about debating about engaging with colleagues across 
both sides of the house, um, their point, um, points of principle more often, or even aspects of your bill and legislation. So I would suggest that all secretaries of state, you know, are pretty well versed in everything that they're speaking about by the time they come to the dispatch box, or I'd like to think so. Um, most are. Well, most are. Um, and you won't be surprised to hear, I mean, I was very diligent. With, I'd spend, and all my ministers would as well, a lot of time planning and preparing. Having sat in the chamber and watched that, and having spent four and a half hours recently bobbing up and down, not even getting called in a debate, which, uh, you know... Is that because uh, <laughs> the speaker was angry with you again, though? No, no, I, was in, I wasn't in trouble with the speaker this time. I, I was a good boy. But one of the things that, I, I, as I said, I spent time as a parliamentary private secretary. And what amazes me is not just as the minister having to stay on top of their, their portfolio, the Q&A in front of them, but if people ever watch Parliament TV, that you look at the speaker's chair to the left mm. of, for the viewers, there'll be a box which will be a civil servants from said department. And they will be also constantly communicating, writing notes, and the job is to get those notes to the Secretary of State, to the Minister from maybe certain questions, if it's constituency-specific, if it's about a point of law. And I've witnessed Pretty at times, you know, and others, when certain questions, Pretty's kind of given a, a good answer to sort of give me five minutes, and then five minutes later goes, oh, to that point that was raised earlier by X person, here's what I said. And to handle that and make it seem seamless is very difficult. So how do you... How do you is that just practice at the dispatch box or is that just is that just practice in department or you know how do you deal with those situations? So it's twofold. Um, you know, and I will always give credit to officials because your officials are there to support you. And I've always been supported in Parliament by my officials. I really have. Um, and in the Home Office in particular, they were outstanding because we'd be in the chamber quite a lot, <laughs> you know, a lot of legislation. Um I think a lot of it, Jonathan, is really how prepared you are um, and how you select to answer a question as well. You know, there are many ways in which you could answer any question. But I think, you know, also having that moment to then come back with a specific point or a fact or a bit more detail, I would never overlook that opportunity. You know, if a bit of information comes back, it's always good to clarify that or to restate actually. You know, the member for X constituency earlier on asked about X, Y, Z, um, this is the latest statistical figure that we have or something of that nature. That's what you do. I mean, that's just part of your way of working and part of the repertoire of being in Parliament. So I, I want to say to end that you said to me, we couldn't get even 30 minutes out of taking a bill through Parliament. It's too boring. And I think I would quite comfortably sit here for another two hours and talk about because I think it's fascinating and I haven't even asked half the questions I've prepared for. But Pretty, thank you so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure, James. Thank you. And talk, I've, I'm, I learned a load of stuff, which I shouldn't really say, given I tell everyone that I know what's going on in Westminster. But I don't know about you. Well, I've, I've learned stuff as well, which I'm sure the Prime Minister will be really grateful for. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I can go away That's and teamwork, Jonathan, mischief. right? <laughs> I'm sure Rishi will be sending both of you a thank you now any, any day soon. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside Whitehall with me, James Starkey. And me, Jonathan Gullis. Please do follow and subscribe to us, our podcast, on wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. And you can leave a rating and a review, which we'd be very glad if you could do. And you can contact us and let us know your thoughts or ask us questions on Twitter at WhitehallPodUK. UK.